What's new in science this week? What's new in science this week? Bench talk, the week in science. Bench talk. Bench talk. Bench talk. You are now listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. Bench Talk, the, the week, week in, in science. science. Dave Robinson here. Hey, we're celebrating. This week, we are broadcasting our 125th episode of Bench Talk, the Week in Science. Yeah, we've been on the air for three years and three months now. And we have a great show for you this week. We're going to start off with Scott Miller telling us about the night sky in November. And then poet Leslie Moise reads a short salute to autumn. And then the show finishes with a discussion by some of Kentucky's most notable experts on the science of bourbon. So stay tuned. First, Professor Scott Miller. November generally brings with it cooler weather and earlier darkness compared to previous months this autumn. For the sky watcher, this can be both a blessing and a curse. A blessing because things happen early enough in the evening to enjoy with family and friends after dinner together. A curse because clothing layers make it somewhat uncomfortable. Still, there is much to see. My front door generally faces north, but the planets are west and south, so better to go around to the back of the house. And since I am hunting planets, I don't wait until dark. One of them will be gone if I wait too long. Starting in the western sky, Venus still lingers above the western horizon. Far outshining the stars, it is the first point of light one can spot there in the early evening before it gets too dark. The thin crescent moon will dance past it from the evenings of November 7th and 8th, making for a pleasant scene. Two points of light catch my eye in the southern sky as darkness falls. These are the planets Jupiter and Saturn. Jupiter is the brighter of the two. Saturn is to the right or west of Jupiter. Though both are close in size, and Saturn has the addition of rings to reflect sunlight back to us, Jupiter is currently half the distance from us at present as Saturn making it shine more brightly in our skies. The moon will shoot by both these the nights of the 10th and 11th of this month. Speaking of the moon, there will be a partial lunar eclipse in the early morning hours of 19th. And I do mean early. The eclipse will officially start with the outer layer of the Earth's shadow, the penumbra, first making contact with the moon. That is, the moon in its orbit reaches Earth's penumbra. But not much is noticed initially because sunlight is still falling on the moon's surface. The more interesting point begins around 2.21 a.m. when the moon reaches the umbra, the darker portion of Earth's shadow. For a bit more than an hour and a half, one can see the moon progress deeper and deeper into the shadow. But this is called a partial eclipse because not all of the moon enters the shadow. At about 4.03 a.m., there will still be a slim sliver of moonlight shining out of the shadow. From this point, the moon will appear to leave the shadow from the Earth behind, all of the while working its way over toward the western horizon. It will completely leave the umbra by 5.47 a.m., and the penumbra, marking the end of this eclipse event, at 7.03, while still about 5 degrees above the western horizon. By that time, the sun will be getting close to rising. In a future episode here, I will give a bit more detail about eclipses in general, why they are rare, and the differences between solar and lunar eclipses. Meteor showers are another easy phenomenon to watch. 
The Leonin meteor shower is active November 6th and continues through the end of November. The peak activity is overnight on the evening of November 16th and early morning skies of November 17th. On this night, the moon will be a few days before reaching full phase, making it a major factor in terms of lighting up the sky to obscure them. Only the fewer, brighter meteors might be seen this year. Most meteor showers occur because Earth is passing through the path of a comet, sweeping up debris left by past visits. The debris behind the Leonids are from Comet Temple Tuttle, left behind each time this comet returns to the inner solar system every 33 years. Yet it is not the fresh material we see from the comet, but rather debris from earlier returns. The expectation under dark skies, away from city lights, would be around 15 meteors per hour, and perhaps an occasional weak outburst when the Earth passes through a debris trail. Sometimes one can see a bright meteor. Some of those can even show a persistent train of meteor light. When I plan one of these trips into the night to see a meteor shower, I take along a comfortable chair or even a cot to make it easier on the neck. A blanket on the ground would do, but there is always that persistent damp dew to deal with if a blanket is used. But it is an option. Once comfortable, I simply scan the sky slowly, chatting with any others who want to share the adventure. This is a good time to look for constellations that may be visible in the sky. If there are planets above the horizon, one can scan for those as well, all the while scanning the sky for our meteors. Many is the time that I have been out with others, perhaps distracted by a planet or a constellation that I was looking for, and I heard someone shout out, there goes one, and I was looking in the wrong direction. So a slow scan, noting what is above my hand while not straying too far from the task at hand, is most successful in finding this elusive quarry. That was Scott Miller of Maysville Community and Technical College. Thanks much, Scott. And now, Leslie Moise, educator and writer, with her poem about the seasons. Seasonal poem. Grass glints in sunlight. Sycamore leaves slap each other. Maple leaves spiral down in a flow of gold, then skip beside me as I walk the length of the field. I follow the flow of the enormous wind from giant sycamore halfway along the pasture all the way to the cluster of red buds toward the front. I hear its glorious whisper in the white pine's eternal dark green. That was Dr. Leslie Moise. She's been so busy these days promoting her latest book, Under the Pomegranate Tree, which happens to be available wherever the well-read buy books these days. So we really appreciate this contribution. Thanks a lot, Leslie. And now, Bourbon Science. You are about to hear part of a panel discussion held on Bench Talk Live back on May 24th, 2021. Bench Talk Live is a collaboration between our show and the Kentucky Academy of Science. And the point is to let the public know what Kentucky scientists are up to these days. This particular session features four leading bourbon experts. It's Dr. Lenny Demaranville of Center College, Dr. Seth DeBolt of University of Kentucky, Dr. Pat Heist, a co-founder of Firm Solutions in Danville, Kentucky, 
and Dr. John Medley of Buffalo Trace Distillery in Frankfort, Kentucky. So we won't be able to hear the entire discussion this week, so we'll continue with it on next week's show. But starting it off is Amanda Fuller, Executive Director of the Kentucky Academy of Science. Take it away, Amanda. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us for the May 2021 uh, edition of Bench Talk Live. I'm Amanda Fuller from the Kentucky Academy of Science, and I'm delighted, as usual, to bring some fantastic guests to us this evening and continue the series that we started last year in June, talking science together over the, over the Zooms. So thanks for tuning in. Just a, a word about Kentucky Academy of Science. We are uh, more than 100 years old. We're a scientific organization that is interdisciplinary, full of scientists from all different backgrounds. And we're more than 4,000 members across Kentucky. So we really do have a lot of breadth of expertise. And it's delightful to bring some of that to you all um, on these evening programs. We have a few different other programs that you may want to know about. We have a speakers bureau, which you can join or which you can promote and find speakers to talk about all kinds of interesting scientific things. The directory is on our website and we have an annual meeting coming up in November, which is November 5th and 6th. We have lots of resources on the website, such as resources for teachers, teaching science, and just other goodies about our programs, our grants that we give to members. And you can find all of that at kyscience.org. So thanks for tuning in. As I mentioned, um, Lenny Damaranville was another one of our uh, champions of science literacy. They got an award um, from KS in 2018. Lenny's at Center College. Uh, he teaches chemistry. And one of the courses that he teaches is the chemistry of beer, wine, and bourbon. So I bet, Lenny, you get asked to give quite a few public talks on those topics that a lot of people are very interested in. <laughs> the, the way this uh, evening, this program actually came about was because somebody requested presentation from Lenny through our Speakers Bureau. Lenny's one of like 150 or 200 members who are members of our Speakers Bureau. And that request came through and I thought, you know what, that would actually make a great program for Bench Talk Live also. So um, put him on the hook to do this as well. And I'm glad that you found other willing participants to share all of your all's expertise with us about that industry. So thanks so much for joining us, Lenny. And um, Lenny, I'm going to turn it over to you to um, introduce the rest of the speakers. Thanks, Amanda. It's the first time the rest of the panelists have heard that I was actually asked to give the talk and then hooked them into actually giving the talk for me. Um, I give that talk frequently and thought I wanted to learn something, something new and, and hear from some experts that are actually working in the field. And so that was the genesis of this idea for a panel. And I'll introduce them in just a second, but at the beginning of any of these talks, I recognize particularly tonight where it's a KAS event, not everybody may be all that familiar with bourbon. So I wanted to just take a, a second to sort of talk about the, the basics of the bourbon, what it is and its process. And so it's a distilled spirit that's made from a grain mixture that starts with at least 50%, 51% corn in the, in the mash bill and usually has malted barley and wheat and rye and other grains added to that. It has to be aged in a new charred oak barrel, and that's where a lot of the flavor and the color comes from. Not all of it, but a lot of the, the flavor comes from there. It's distilled to no more than 160 proof, which if you're not familiar with proof, that's 80% alcohol by volume. And then it's aged in a container in the barrel for at no more than 
125 proof and bottled at 80 proof. And so the process is we're talking about different things tonight. We start with those grains, they're ground and added to what we call the mash. And that's water. And in that process, we'll talk a little bit. You're getting those grains into the water, dissolving the sugars and producing a wort that is then fermented with yeast. And those yeast eat up the sugars, turn them into alcohol. That's then distilled and put into barrels for aging. And then it's bottled. And of course, the last step is when you pop that bottle open and pour it in your glass. And so that is a real brief overview of the process and what it is. And we'll dive into more of that throughout the evening. Um, but I'll take a minute now to just introduce the other panelists that are on the screen with me. Pat Heist is a co-founder and co-owner of Firm Solutions, which is a provider of yeast fermentation products and technical services to both beverage alcohol producers and fuel ethanol producers. And out of that company came Wilderness Trace Distillery, and that was founded in 2013 and is now one the 14th largest bourbon producer, at least last time I checked, in the world or in the US. And he's also an adjunct professor at the James Beebe Institute at the University of Kentucky. And he's currently in Louisville teaching for Bourbon University, no, Moonshine University. And sort of working around at least my screen, the next person is Seth DeBolt, who is the director of the James B. Bean Institute at University of Kentucky. And his specialty in graduate school was wine. And he discovered the tartaric acid pathway in wine grapes, but now is really involved in a bunch of different processes where we're looking at the components of bourbon and their quality and collaborating on a bunch of stuff across campus. So it's a real pleasure to have him with, with us tonight. And then finally is John Medley, and he's the Technical Services Director at Buffalo Trace D Distillery um, and is responsible for the technical leadership for Sazerac products. Sazerac's the parent company to Buffalo Trace and improvements in the manufacturing process. He's got a broad background in chemistry and engineering and had led their quality lab before um, and now works to develop analytical testing across. Glad you're all here with me tonight and looking forward to learning from you and hearing some, some things about the process and some things that are going on in terms of science research right now. And so I'm gonna kick it off with a question for Pat and sort of thinking about starting with that process and sort of some general background. Firm Solutions has always been really involved with the production of yeasts and enzymes that are used in distilled products. Could you give us a little bit about what Firm Solutions has learned about the chemistry and biology behind those yeast strains and enzymes and what's important there to think about in the production process? Yeah, absolutely. You know, to preface what I'm getting ready to say, I have to say that I'm a little nervous here. I got one of my uh, favorite professors on the line here, uh, Dr. Mark Coyne, who I had soil microbiology from at UK. So I'm going to have to watch my words here. But anyway, you know, the good thing about these days is there are companies like our company, Firm Solutions. We have a repository of about 9,000 different yeast strains. And several of those are appropriate for making distilled spirits. Some of those are more appropriate for making beer. Some of those are not appropriate for making anything. They're contaminating yeast that would, you know, make your beer taste like 
dirty socks. So starting with a huge collection like that, you whittle that down to the 25 or so strains that we market as distilled spirit strains. So these days, if you're going into the business, there are several companies that you can go to that will give you a, a really great strain for making distilled spirits. So and we're one of those companies. So that part is kind of already solved through years and years of observations and running different distilleries. The enzymes and the nutrients, that's something else that we look at. For making whiskey, you're talking about fermenting with all the parts of the grain in there. It's called a whole mash. Whereas if you're making beer, you're separating out the solids and fermenting a clear wort, which has much more potential for microbial contamination. And then you get into over other things like hard seltzer. You're talking about ferment sugar, and there's a whole other subset of nutritional requirements. So there's a lot of different factors that go on from a biochemical and a microbiological standpoint whenever you're looking at things from a yeast, enzyme, and a nutrient standpoint. So could you give an example of a different process that might happen in distilling? You're trying to chew up all of the sugars that are involved in, in all of the starches versus in beer, you often have some residual sugars left over. What's some of the scientific background that's going on with that well you know if you look at beer and wine as well as hard seltzer production you're you're basically drinking the end product of fermentation so if you're fermenting a, a five thousand gallon fermentation you're you're still going to have the same number of cups of beer at the end of it, it, it whether it comes out the way you want it to or not so it's just about whether or not it's going to be palatable in the case of distilled spirits production, you're only going to get the benefit in terms of your yield or your production or the number of barrels we're making from the alcohol that is produced from the sugar there. So we want to use yeast strains that have what's called very low attenuation, meaning that they finish off all the sugar and make as much alcohol as possible. Whereas in a beer, you might want to leave behind some of those sugars for a combination of an alcoholic beverage plus a little bit of sweetness. And then there's a lot of other different goals of how long do you want to take to ferment? You know, you can finish a fermentation in two days, or if, you, in, if you're making a beer where you want very complex flavors, you might extend that for weeks or over a month at very low temperatures. So just different production parameters relative to what your goals are. And so sort of with that idea, you've got these different goals. John, you might be able to weigh in a little bit here. What are some of the routine chemical or biochemical assays or things that you look at in the production process and, and what's important about those as you're looking at that? Sure, one of our big goals at Buffalo Trace Distillery day in and day out is to produce a product that is incredibly consistent. So we have our own proprietary strain of yeast that we work with and throughout the process, whether it's during the cooking process where we're actively monitoring you know, how much grain goes in, checking the sugar levels, making sure that, you know, everything, all the enzymes that are supposed to be active are there and doing their thing all the way up through the distillation where we are oftentimes looking multiple times throughout the day at the distillate to ensure that what's produced in the morning, what's produced in the evening, at the end of the day, it, it all turns out the same. So we're looking at proof, making sure that what comes off the still has the right concentration of alcohol. 
we, we use a lot of gas chromatography where we actually can look at a chemical fingerprint of the distillate to make sure that all of the compounds that are supposed to be there are in fact there. One of the things that's, that's often overlooked is the impact that the yeast has on the flavor profile of the whiskey. Uh, so like I said, we have a proprietary strain because in addition to making ethanol, the yeast makes a lot of other products, a lot of other chemicals that contribute to the, the sensory profile of that. And so we want to make sure that during distillation, we're maintaining that. And then all the way up through the, the barreling, the aging process, we're routinely sampling, looking at, again, the gas chromatography, looking at the proof to see what's happening in the barrels to see if if the angels are, are taking their share, they're taking more than their share or not quite enough because all of that impacts the overall profile of the finished product. Throughout the process, again, for our big products, the main goal is day in and day out to be as consistent as possible. And so a lot of the testing is, is ensuring that we're hitting those marks that we know work so that you know, three, seven, 23 years down the road, we get the product that we expect when it comes out of the barrel. So that, I'll, I'll throw this out to, to any of you that want to take it. It's a question that often comes up when I'm giving a talk. And I know it's a semi-controversial topic. The idea that you can get a chemical fingerprint leads people to the question of, well, is it possible if you've got the chemical fingerprint to just get those chemicals and mix them together and forget all of this, take the yeast and go from scratch? Um, and there are people that think that might be possible and people that don't. Do you guys have any, any thoughts about that? Yeah, I have thoughts on that. You know, I mentioned that, that we test for some of the, the other chemicals that are produced by the yeast. They're you know, typically called congeners. And there are about 10 of them, depending on who you ask, that, that are routinely monitored that kind of give a, a general taste profile. Um, there are also kind of multiple levels of additional compounds that are present in, in the bourbon, uh, whether it's from the distillation or from the fermentation and distillation process or from the barrels, from the chemistry that happens in the barrels. And some of the chemicals that are present are present at exceedingly small levels. You know, we, we oftentimes talk in parts per million, but we probably have a pretty good idea about those compounds. But the compounds that are in there at parts per billion or parts per trillion, we might not even know that they're there because they don't show up in, under routine testing unless you're specifically looking for them. And then one of the things that really intrigues me, you know, even if you had the right chemicals, the right compounds to mix together, you've got to get the, the ratios just right because one of the beauties of good bourbon is that it's balanced. And if, if you go too far in, in one direction or the other, it's not going to work. And you know, maybe we'll get there someday from a synthetic bourbon standpoint. Uh, I like it. Uh, I like it coming out of the barrel myself. Yeah, something else I could add to that, just kind of an analogy, since there's kind of a scientific group here. You know, if, if you're looking at a, a contaminating bacteria or a yeast that you don't know what it is, you can employ molecular biology techniques and come up with a 350 or 400 base pair sequence that'll give you the identification of that organism down to a species level. But that doesn't even scratch the surface on whole genome sequencing. If you really want to know everything there is to know about that organism. So when we look at routine testing, like what Dave was mentioning, you know, those 10 or so compounds that we look 
at to get a good cross section of heads, hearts, and tails, as well as, you know, there's flavors that come with acetaldehyde or ethyl acetate or, or, you know, some of the other chemicals on that list. But there are 2,000 plus chemicals that have been detected, not even mentioning the ones Dave mentioned, that are at parts per billion levels that you can taste but have yet to be recorded with any type of analytical data. You know, using a chemical footprint to say this is a high rye bourbon or this is a weeded bourbon just barely scratches the surface on the complexity of all the different chemicals that are in there above and beyond the very few chemicals that we use as reference chemicals. So it it is extremely complicated. I mean, I'm science guy, just like everybody else here. And I think most scientists are searching for the truth of the matter. And, you know, if, if you can easily put together a 20 year old bourbon flavor by hashing together a bunch of chemicals, I mean, it's got to be possible, but given the tools we have today and the attempts that have been made to do that thus far have not cut the mustard. I mean, I haven't had anything that tastes anything like, you know, whether it's accelerated aging or, or some slick chemistry, there's nothing that I've personally had that even comes close to truly aged Kentucky bourbon. That sounds like, as an analytical chemist, I've still got work to do. So I, I like those, those answers. We'll figure it out someday. Um, so sort of turning to some bigger picture topics, Seth, part of the James B. Dean Institute for Kentucky Spirits is a focused on scientific development and research. What are some of the main goals of the Institute that you're hoping to accomplish over the next few years? Thanks and hi everyone. I really appreciate those two guys who are talking and are going to continue speaking. Pat Heist and John Medley, two incredible UK grads who are uh, just doing incredible things out there and have been supporting this program since it started back in 2012. And they've been, them and others at Buffalo Trace have just been um, really credible supporters, but, but Pat and Shane are just involved with everything and give so without any reward to the students and promoting their passion for science and that guy there deserves some sort of an award for for how much he shares with the students and and really encourages them so uh now i'll get into what our goals are i can share some of the building plans with you and that's kind of the biggest headache right now is building a building on campus turns out to be a little bit difficult and uh, a little bit of bureaucracy but all wonderful bureaucracy when you're moving towards a 600 barrel maturation house and a 7,500 square foot distillery on UK's campus where it should have been for a hundred years. And funnily enough, right where Harlan Wheatley at Buffalo Trace said, you need to put a distillery right there when he came and visited in 2012. So it's probably a hundred years overdue, but honestly, the things that we look at to help behind the scenes, these folks do the amazing work that they do. And whether that's related to um, agronomy, it's just opening a door into this land-grant flagship university and all the power that's within it and other universities like yours, Lenny, where you can open the doors to that university and say, hey, come get access to the students as a workforce development. You can get access to the technical resources. In our case, you've got the agricultural school, food science and chemical engineering are just really very interwoven skill sets that are very important. 
We do a lot of work with spent grains and we'd love in the next two years to have a solution that Pat and Shane have already brought one really promising solution to market. But now if we can get that concentrated stuff and make it into high value products and it's an incredible research challenge that everyone's really embedded in but it's, it's none of the sexy stuff. It's all the behind the scenes science. We're sequencing the genome of the oak tree. We're doing a lot of work with things that we think are gonna be important hundred years from now, but uh, we can do as academics that may not be profitable in the next 10, 20 years for a business. That was Dr. Lenny Demaranville of Center College, Dr. Seth DeBolt of University of Kentucky, Dr. Pat Heist of Firm Solutions and Dr. John Medley of Buffalo Trace Distillery, speaking with Amanda Fuller of the Kentucky Academy of Science about the science of bourbon. Thank you to these participants. Now, we'll post a link to the full discussion on our SoundCloud and Facebook pages, along with more information about the speakers, so check that out. Otherwise, wait till next week to hear the rest of this discussion on Bench Talk, The Week in Science. See you then.